0: Oh God, who dares to speak for you, especially when you have already spoken so powerfully in so many ways today? Uh, Lord, uh, may my feeble words do you justice and do your heart justice. May we proclaim the message that, that you desire the world to know, that you are Lord and that you reign and that that day of the marriage supper is coming very soon. Let us be ready. Let us be filled with the joy that you are coming. Amen. In World War I, there was an Austrian army commander who was asked to lay siege to a small village in the region of Tyrol. It's a kind of contested area at the time between Austria and France. And his army had met a lot of resistance in the area, but he had superior men, he had superior strategy, he had superior resources, it was just a matter of time. And yet, he was a cautious man, and one of his prisoners of war said, you'll never take that village. You'll never take that village. They have an invincible leader. What is he talking about? The commander inquired to his staff, but nobody knew. He dismissed the comment, but... Being cautious, he doubled his preparations for the attack just in case. As his army descended through the Alps, the commander noticed that cattle were still grazing out in the valley, people still working in the fields as if nothing was going to happen. Either they aren't expecting us or this is some kind of trap, he thought. He continued marching toward the village, the colors flying, horns sounding a challenge, weapons drawn, all the commotion. It it brought women and children to the doorways, but... You know, nobody panicked. Instead, the people of the village quietly returned all of their household chores as if this threatening army was no threat. As they kept going through the village, the commander found it increasingly difficult to maintain order within his troops. Some of the soldiers were beginning to answer questions from children in the village. One older soldier blew a kiss to a little girl and said, "'She reminds me of my little girl, Lisa.'" All of his senses now on high alert, the commander still found no sign of any kind of ambush. And as his troops stood in the open square in the center of the village facing the town hall, he fully expected the battle to begin. An old white-haired man, apparently the mayor of the town, came out and stood in the square along with a few other men just dressed in simple peasant clothes, apparently very, very unimpressed by this army that stood before them, some of the most terrible soldiers in the great and mighty army of Austria. "'Welcome, brother,' said the old man as he extended his hand to the commander. Soldier came up, you know, with a weapon drawn, ready to kill the man if he came any closer. But, I mean, it's obvious he meant no harm. "'Where are your soldiers?' demanded the commander of the mayor." Soldiers, said the man with a puzzled look. We have no soldiers. It was as if if the commander had asked a question as strange as like, where are your circus elephants? (laughs) But we have come to take your village, said the commander. Okay, no one's going to stop you, said the mayor, with a small smile and a, a look of pity. Is there no one here to fight us? The commander asked. No, the mayor said. There is no one here for you to fight. We have chosen Christ for our leader, and he has taught us a better way of living. The commander had absolutely no military strategy for this kind of confrontation. And so he conferred with his lead officers And they retreated from the village with his troops and left it completely untouched. Later, the commander wrote this in his journal. The village was, in fact, impossible to take. Had I ordered my men to mistreat or dominate or, heaven forbid, fire upon these smiling men, women, and children, they wouldn't have obeyed me. How could they? In the face of such simple joy and peace, which they had not experienced since the beginning of this war. Even military discipline has its limits. How could I command a soldier to hurt a child that reminded him of his little Lisa? I reported to headquarters that the town had offered unassailable resistance even though it damaged my military reputation. But I was right. We had been utterly conquered by these simple folk who joyfully, implicitly followed the leadership of Jesus Christ. The slide that you see behind me is from a mass grave, a catacomb. It's in the Priscilla Catacombs in Rome. It's been dated to about the 3rd century. And if you know anything about church history, that is right in the 3rd century, was right in the midst of great upheaval. Three different persecutions may have been happening around the time that this was painted simply and beautifully on the wall of a tomb where Christians met secretly in order to worship Jesus Christ. It could have been during the persecution of Decius, or it could have been the persecution of Valerian, or it could have even been at the beginning of the persecution, the worst persecution of Christianity under the Roman Empire, of Diocletian, where in essence all out close to just, I mean, it would have been genocide if if we were a racial group, um, would have been declared against... Christians under Diocletian. And I just, I want you to look at this because it may preach a better sermon about celebration than I ever could because who is it that's being depicted in this? Who is it? Yeah, it's, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The flames licking their feet, their hands Raised their eyes up. If you want to know what celebration as a discipline of the Spirit looks like, there it is. There it is. When we look at the history of the early church in Scripture, what is it that makes them so unstoppable? What is it? Persecution, dispersion, hardship, suffering. Martyrdom, I mean, these things are, are they, they are written into the story of the church from its very inception. And yet the church continues to grow and flourish and live as Christ Jesus. Was it their education system? Was it their plan of teaching? Was it their worship style? Was it the way that they brought in visitors? How well organized their relational programs and small group structures were? What about their social justice programs or their community outreach or any of the other buzzwords, the things that we hold as very, very important right now? In truth, it was none of those things. It was none of those things. The all-conquering power of the church was wrapped up in one very simple thing. People who had discipled themselves to Christ Jesus had given themselves over to the care of the Holy Spirit. And they'd done that with reckless abandon. And the result was undeniable unquenchable joy that was effectively contagious to the world around them, despite the circumstances that they existed in. Almost every letter written to the early churches includes the exhortation for joyful living, probably none as explicit as Philippians 4, where Paul makes rejoicing in life a command of Almighty God for his church. Church, we are called even more than that, commanded by our Father to rejoice in this life not in some reserved rational way, but in the same spirit as the early church. We cast our cares upon him for he cares for us, right? We experience the freedom of being truly carefree, not careless, carefree. This is the discipline of celebration, and it is the most striking and I believe the most vital characteristic of the disciple because it makes joy and grace fuel for the abundant life that Jesus promises us. And yet when I look around, I have to ask myself, where are the churches that are doing this? I see a lot of churches that are skilled at teaching. I see a lot of churches that are skilled at music or worship or evangelism or assimilating people into the body or social justice or compassion. But where are the churches that are producing abnormally loving, joyful, courageous individuals in in inexplicably high percentages. Where are the churches that are doing that? Church, I I want us to be a church that does that. Because I believe if we're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and we have really given ourselves over to that with reckless abandon, okay? All right? In a holy, reckless abandon all of these other things, God will add them. Where are the churches that are skilled in the discipline of celebration? And it is a discipline. It is a skill. Celebration should not be confused with some idea of a holy diversion or a distraction from life or worse, a denial of reality. Instead, celebration is is the embracing of the true, capital R, reality of what God has been, is, and is going to accomplish in the world around us. It is a vision thing. It is a raising of our eyes out of the circumstances of our lives and seeing what God is really about. This is not like most of our entertainment. This is not like most of what we consider to be a party, right? Most of our entertainment seeks to promote escapism. It whisks us away from reality into some artificial plastic feeling kind of happy place that we want to stay in because it's divorced from the reality, and then we have to come back to reality, which is not so awesome. But what if, what if it, the, the real true story was that the reality that we see is not really the reality, What if we were disciplining ourselves to see with God's eyes? What if we were disciplining ourselves to feel with God's heart, to trust in God's promises? The outpouring of such a discipline is joy. And that joy is expressed in celebration. Far from being wrapped up in ourselves, the way of most of our culture's ideas of celebrating are, the discipline of celebration is a selfless discipline. It is a joy that focuses on the creator rather than the created things. And through that, it's able to embrace the common ventures and features of our life in a very, very redeemed and different kind of way. Celebration as a discipline brings joy to our life. And Nehemiah eight ten reminds us of this. The joy that we have in the Lord is our strength. If the joy of the Lord is what makes us strong in our life, then we need to realize that celebration is not just a command of God. It is the way that He wants to bring about the kingdom among us. It's a way that He wants to make His power Manifest among us as a church. In essence, we are commanded to party. Amen. I, I I, you know, I mean, I like, like, is everybody okay with that? <laughs> I, I hope so. I really do. I, I really, really do. Because at the heart of the discipline of celebration is this renewed vision. And this renewed vision that's not just that God is in control in the middle of my circumstance, but where is all of this... In a, where is this going anyway? What is, the, what is the end that we imagine? Listen to the reading today from the word that we received from the Lord today. John is sending a message to a group of churches that is struggling to hold their identity under pressure inside and outside. And things are going to get worse before they get better, says the bearer of the vision of God in Revelation. Scene after scene of trial, some of them exceptionally disturbing, are laid out before the church. But in each one, there is a thread of hope. Why? Because there is an assurance that the story is not over yet. And then in the 19th chapter of Revelation, there is this glimpse of the finale that comes into view. The wedding feast of the Lamb. To understand the power of this image, you have got to get how the Jewish wedding works. Okay? It's actually a two-part thing. There's the betrothal and then there's the feast. The betrothal happens in a ceremony between the bridegroom and the chosen bride. Vows are exchanged in the context of a ceremonial meal that actually coincides with the four promised cups of Passover. Then the bridegroom leaves and goes to his father's house and he adds on a place for he and his bride-to-be to live with the rest of the family. And the bride waits where she is with her family in another part of town, possibly in a completely different town, far away. They don't necessarily see each other. But here's the thing. Even before the consummation of the wedding feast, they're already married. It's not like now where folks are kind of engaged and that means sort of committed unless something happens. Okay? I mean, all of the rights and the responsibilities of that identity are on the bride already. She is already the bride. The identity has already been conferred. They're just waiting for the feast that's going to finish it. Right? And she is readying herself, and she is eagerly expecting the day when her husband will return and the feast will finish the marriage covenant that is already upon her. And now I think about that in terms of Christ and you and I as the church. At the table just a few minutes ago, okay, we remembered the fact that long ago Jesus looked at the church, held up the cup of redemption and said, this is my blood, the bride price. I take you to be my wife, church. And then he paid the bride price on the cross And he ascends to his father's place with a promise. I'm getting a place ready for you, my bride. And the church, hearing John's words, and for us as the church today, so far off, yet so very, very close in the span of eternity to those words. I don't think we realize how close we are in the span of eternity. How could we? We're finite beings. We have no idea what 2,000 years is in the span of eternity. No idea could feel like yesterday. I have no idea, right? It seems so long ago, and yet we're so right in the middle of it, church, and I think somehow we've lost that eager anticipation. And yet that's what this is all about, right? They are hearing the announcement of the wedding feast. We are hearing the announcement of the wedding feast and envisioning this not-so-far-off ending where the bride and the groom get united forever. And at the center of it, is a party. Except this one never ends. And the rejoicing that goes along with it, it doesn't fade. It doesn't get old. There is no morning after. And this is the dream that the church lifts its eyes to. This is the hope that we get called to fixate ourselves upon. It is this vision that makes the act of coming to the table so much more than a memorial service for us. We commemorate the death of Christ, but we also celebrate our wedding vows to him every time we come to the table. It is an act of celebration, just like everything else that we do as a church community. It is an act of remembering who we are and whose we are. Blessed is everyone that's invited to come. And that invitation's for everybody. That invitation's for you. That invitation's for me. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The celebration does more than just draw my eye to that far off someday about the wedding feast. Celebration reminds me that I'm already a part of the bride. We already have the identity given by Christ at the table in the cross. We have all the rights and responsibilities of it now. Each day the kingdom is getting closer. And we get to celebrate the markers of its movement right now. This is what has always made the church unstoppable. That there is nothing that can keep us from the wedding feast of the Lamb. The party is on its way and it's just getting started now. We tend to think of heaven as a far off and far away place. We want to limit it to time and space. The problem is, is that we're worshiping a God who is not bound by time and space. And so when he's talking about a new city, and when he's talking about a wedding feast, and when he's talking about a place where God and man dwell together, you've got to realize something, folks. Heaven is breaking into today all the time. All the time. When prayers are offered for families that are hurting, heaven breaks into the world. When we come around and lay hands on people that are in pain, heaven breaks into the world. When we lift our hands and we lift our hearts and we praise the God who daily saves us, heaven breaks in. Do we have eyes to see that? Do we rejoice at seeing heaven break into our daily lives. That is what the discipline of celebration is all about. And here's the thing. It's, it's really, really hard to have a party of one. You know? I mean, you can have a party hat and a horn and a cake and the whole nine yards, right? It's just not the same. It's not the same, right? It's actually, if you think about it, it's kind of silly, Right? All right, now we're going to have a game of pin the tail on the donkey. I'm going to blindfold myself and walk around. I mean, come on. Right? And yet, and yet, so many of us think, oh, that's fine. I just, so what we're saying is is I just kind of need to renew my attitude about life personally. No, no. We need to be together so that we can discipline ourselves together to be able to see what God is doing. It is really hard to raise your eyes out of your circumstances and see what God has planned for you on the day-to-day. I know how this is. I am a person, all right? I, I know, all right? And it's hard to raise your circumstances out of your own identity or out of your own family or what... You need other people journeying with you that are also going to help you raise your eyes, I think that's one of the things that, that the gals are getting into in the, in the Beth Moore Song of Ascent study, right? Is that the whole point of the Song of Ascents was like it was a hard road to get up to the temple, man. You know, I'm not just talking like vertically. I mean, like you got people that are going to like rob you and mess with you on the way, right? And you need, there was strength in numbers to climb the steps, right? To go up the path, not just physically, but spiritually. So that you keep putting one foot in front of the other to go, up to the heights, right? We need that. That is one of the fundamental characteristics of Christian community is the ability to celebrate God together. To celebrate his kingdom. And so what will a holy celebration among us look like? I hold up my 3-year-old daughter as an example. Okay? I, one I one of these times you need to catch her when, when she's, like, not at children's church, she tends to kind of leave and come up early sometimes, right? And I've seen her back there, you know, like with Nicole or whatever. She likes to dance, but it's kind of just more like kind of doing this, you know? She just, she just does this, okay? She's she got the arms up, and she, twir- she twirls, and I'm not even going to try to twirl, one, because I don't have a dress on, um, and so it would just <laughs> look wrong, Okay? There's something about the dress when you twirl, and it comes out, and it looks, okay, I just, I can't replicate that for you with my suit coat, okay? But as Molly goes through life, I see these spontaneous outbursts of joy in her words, in her body language, in her heart. She sings while she picks up her clothes. She dances when she goes from room to room. She stops what she's doing, and she snuggles in beside her daddy, and she says, I love you for no particular reason, which is the most awesome thing in the whole world. Okay, okay. She had a big sister that taught her how to do it and she's picked it up very well and I really appreciate it. Okay. Celebration as disciples, as a discipline, is just as simple as filling our lives with the gratitude of the good things that we have and expressing our thankfulness to God for them. Sabbath takes on a whole new meaning when it's joined with celebration, if you think about it. One day a week devoted solely to specific acts of celebration eating food that you love, listening to music that stirs your soul, reading things that refresh your spirit, surrounding yourself with the beauty of creation and the beauty of God's people, experiencing and savoring the goodness of God and rejoicing all for one singular purpose, that you could direct your heart to know the giver of every good and perfect gift. Do not underestimate God's interest in things like pleasure and laughter and joy. Your Savior did not. He spent time at weddings. He spent time at parties. He spent time eating and laughing and loving and savoring existence all for the purpose of giving glory to the Father. It wasn't for himself. It was totally about being focused on on his Father and how good his dad is and experiencing and showing us how good it can be to love our dad who gives us all the good stuff in the world right And when we come together it connects us back to our identity as a church we are tempted when we are alone to slump back into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer laments as the mirthless attitude of receiving our daily bread with sorrow with pretentious hurry haste or even worse with shame the great source of god's joy is the intimacy that he experiences in constant relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And his goal from the beginning has been to invite humanity into that relationship deeper and further every day. Right? We are the same. And it's through celebrating together that we're called to cast off the cares and the trials and the suffering of our lives and be drawn into that anticipation of the wedding feast that is surely and quickly in coming for us together in small groups, in the great church, in whatever it is that we participate in, all right? I mean, just just think of the potluck as like just a, just a taste, right, you know, of the wedding feast, all right? I mean, we're going to come together and we're going to share in life together, and it's going to be great. So let's share in it now. The practice is for us to live lives together, find reasons in our lives to be with one another, sharing our lives together, laughing together, taking God seriously and sometimes taking ourselves less so, creating together, relishing each other's ability to create as a gift of God, engaging in these things. It's not some sort of trivial aside or self-centered humanistic gospel It is an outpouring of the fruits of the Spirit, of love and joy and peace being made real among us in the way that we live life together. I mean, think about it. We have deserved so little, run so far, done so poorly by our Savior, and yet His response was to draw so near and give so much and love so faithfully and bind us so securely to Himself. How can we not celebrate that? church it's easy you say you don't know what my life is like you don't know the pain i've had to endure you don't know the worry that's hanging over me you don't know the anger that's buried in me you don't know the sorrow that's brought me to my knees you're probably right probably right. I don't know all of it. Some of it I would never be able to understand even if I did know all of it. But I say to you that your savior said I came to free you from that. I came to allow you to live in two places. Not as a denial of reality, but a but a way where you can live in the now. Where the kingdom is at hand, even if it's not fully realized. And you can also live in that day. When it's all going to be complete. You get to live in, in both of those places now. That's what Jesus says to you. I, I came so that you could do that now. Not, not just someday way far away. I came so you could do that now. Church. The gift that he has given us is the ability to lift our eyes and behold his glory and exult in it in celebration. The greatest test of joy of the spirit is its compatibility with pain. Joy in the very spite of something. The theologian Karl Barth once called joy a defiant nevertheless. Set against bitterness set against resentment, set against pain, set against loss. It was almost where we dig our heels in and say, I will rejoice nevertheless. If we don't rejoice today, we may never rejoice at all, church. There is a simple truth and an exhortation from David, a man after God's own heart, when he says, This is the day in the midst of death, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of loneliness. This is the day that the Lord has made. And he made a good day. Rejoice and be glad in it because you get to live in two places. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, good, bad, or otherwise, this fact remains, today you have been handed an invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Blessed are you for you're on your way. The celebration has already begun in the heart of the bride and she is getting excited for that day soon when she will wait no more. And if you think that sounds like a breath of fresh air right now, you just wait until the real party starts. The question is, is are you going to accept the invitation? Will you really cast your cares on him and will we really exult in his goodness in our life? I invite you, church. Join us. Let us live lives of celebration of our coming King and Savior. Let's stand. Let's worship. Let's celebrate.